You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I think I did what I think I was missing in the city of Boston. Like, I love oysters. I mean, the only place that had oysters was Union Oyster Bar. Why don't we have a butcher shop, a real butcher shop? And plus, uh, everything's nostalgic for me. That was Barbara Lynch, who took me on a tour of her old South Boston neighborhood to discover her checkered past, her current success, and her prospects for the future. I'll be speaking to Barbara later in the show. But first, it's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to check in with Raina Javeri about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? Hi, Chris. We're doing noodles, uh, my favorite thing. They're quick and delicious, but it's a little bit different. It's not Italian. We're doing soba with miso butter and asparagus. Uh, Maybe a word or two about soba and miso. Sure. Soba is the Japanese word for buckwheat. They're a very common type of noodle in Japan. They contain primarily buckwheat, but also some regular wheat flour, typically in ones you'll find in the store. And miso? So we really like miso as well, um, Chris, because it has a savory sweet flavor. It's a fermented bean paste. Most people are familiar with miso soup that you're given at Japanese restaurants. So we're going to do something a little bit unusual with the miso here. We are going with David Chang's technique of blending miso with butter to add some richness to this dish. My head just exploded. I mean, that's not, they don't do this in Japan, right? This is just a David Chang thing? This is a David Chang thing, and it's also now kind of a Milk Street thing. We really like the flavor that this brings. It brings a creaminess, um, a mouthfeel, and a texture that's quite unusual and still delicious for a weeknight supper. Mouthfeel, Raina, is my (laughs) least favorite word in the kitchen. But it's a good dish. (laughs) Six demerits. It's not the end of the month yet. Um, And finally, asparagus. uh, and, And we're trying to figure out how to cook asparagus so it comes out both the stalk and the tip perfectly cooked, right? Aha, so this is the exciting part. As you said, cooking asparagus has this challenge because it's almost like it's two vegetables. You've got the sturdy fibrous stalk and then this feathery tender tip. But we came across this really promising approach to cooking asparagus and this is what we do. We cook it in two parts, but in one pot. Two parts, one pot. Okay, I got it. So we're going to use the same pot of water for the noodles, the tips and the spears, but we put them in at different timings. So we start by cooking the soba noodles for about a minute, then we add the asparagus stalks and cook for another minute, and then we add the tips and cook for an additional two minutes. So this whole thing from start to finish is 10 minutes? Your math is excellent. So when all that's done cooking, we drain it, but we reserve a little bit of the cooking water and add it back into the sauce, which also has a little bit of grated ginger. And finally, we like to top this with a fried egg with the yolk a little bit runny, which mixes wonderfully with the miso butter, and it creates a very rich sauce for the noodles and the asparagus. Raina, do you have to put an egg on everything? Everything's got eggs put on it. Put an egg on it. This is the, the year of the fried <laughs> egg. That's right. So another noodle dinner in just a few minutes. This is soba noodles. This is a little butter with miso, which is that wonderful fermented bean paste, and asparagus. And then, of course, a fried egg on top. Thank you, Raina. You're welcome. You can find all of our recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. 
You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, as well as author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, let's take some more calls. Let's do it. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is John from Colebrook, Connecticut. How can we help you? My question is, I'm a pretty good technician in the sense that uh, nothing scares me in the kitchen, but I always follow a recipe. I'm retiring soon, and I'd like to uh, upgrade my uh, skills and go to the next level, you know, sort of cook without a book, that kind of thing. So I wonder how someone who's an amateur gets to learn how to do that. There's so many great books out there that you could work with. And actually, one book I thought of was the one by Michael Ruhlman, which is all about proportions. R-U-H-L-M-A-N. And there's other cookbook authors who, if you read them, you'll just understand it. And I do believe it will give you freedom to go out on your own. Like Zuni Cafe is Hands Down by Judy Rogers, one of my all-time favorite books. Madeline Kamen, The Making of a Chef, anything by James Peterson. Yeah, I have another thought. Start with 10 recipes, a basic braise, a stir-fry, a stew, whatever, saute, that are generic, that is, they're technique-based, and get them down so well you don't need to look at a recipe. And then you can start to improvise. And so start with 10, and then Mm -hmm. go to 15, and then 20. I think you only need about 25 recipes to cover almost all of cooking, or 80% of it. So just start with a few, make them over and over again, then throw out the recipe, and then you're good to go. A basic soup concept Using water, vegetables, flavorings, you can make a 1,000 soups once you get the fundamental concept down. John, let me ask you another question. How much do you cook mm-hmm. right now? Every day, once yeah, a week? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. I, I do the majority of cooking in the house. Wonderful. Because I, I also feel like the more you cook, the better you get and the more confident yeah. you become. My way of relaxation is to come home after work and to cook. Of course, my wife complains that she has to do the cleanup after my cooking, but what? I'm getting better at th- I wish you'd, you'd come home and cook for me. I'd do the dishes any day. There is a good music analogy. My favorite is after a while playing music, you listen to a song, you can hear what's going on. You can understand the chord structure, and it becomes, right. the, all of a sudden, it's a one four five or whatever. It's a one six two five. I think with cooking, the same thing. You look at a recipe at this point. You look at it, okay, well, it's a, it's a basic braise. And it has the five ingredients in the right proportions. And once you see that, you can recognize the substructure. And that's why getting to know those basic recipes really is important. So I know that it takes a tablespoon and a half of flour to thicken a cup of water. I know that it takes one egg yolk to make a cup of mayonnaise with one cup of oil. So when you get those kind of proportions in your head and you have an idea, well, you know, if I'm going to make a sauce, I'm going to need a quarter cup, at least a quarter to a third cup of liquid per person. Start getting those kind of proportions in your head for what you're doing. That's a good idea. And that would really help you. So on the one hand, you might already know enough. Maybe you just put mm-hmm. the cookbook away and say, tonight I'm making dinner without one. Or just keep trying new recipes and just jotting down little notes about what you learned, you know, for about a month and then give it a shot. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Enjoy the show very much. Take Good care. luck with everything. Okay, Thanks. John. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milkstreet Radio. Who's calling? It's Susan Gill. Hi, Susan Gill. How are you? I'm good. Good. I don't head code, but I'm good. Okay. you got more energy than I do, so go for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, since I love using a microplane because it's so much easier than cleaning a, um, a grater when I'm grating Parmesan, I mean, it's just easier to clean. But I know that it's so much fluffier when you grate Parmesan or Pecorino or something. And I'm wondering if there is a formula for quantity when it's not measured in ounces 
or grams or something. If it's a quarter of a cup, how much do I increase it when I'm using a microplane? Excellent question. Because you're right, it gets very, very fluffy. Yeah. I would say at least double, maybe double, triple. At double, least double. Yeah. At least double. But it really depends on whether it's packed or not packed. Yes. So for my last book, I went with one ounce of packed, lightly packed cheese on a microplane is about a half a cup. And on uh-huh. a, f- a four-sided grater, it would have been a quarter cup. Does it have any effect on, I know it's not as attractive when you're using it as a garnish, but it doesn't probably have too much effect when you're stirring it into a recipe? I don't think it makes a difference. The one thing I would say about one of those four-sided graters, which is part of the reason I was so glad when the microplane came along, Mm. is I don't know if you've ever noticed that a little bit of you goes into every dish. (laughs) Those things are vicious. I'm going to speak from the loyal opposition. Okay. Microplane zester or grater is great for ginger or something. But if you need a half a cup of cheese, life's too short to use a zester. I would use a box grater because it will take a third at a time. Do you think so? I, I haven't thought so. Maybe my box grater isn't as large as yours is. But you find it takes just as much time? Yeah, I think it's about the same myself. The other thing is, since you brought it up, you know, they talk about garlic being very different uh, depending upon how it's chopped right. or grated. If something calls for, a, let's say, a minced or very finely chopped garlic, can you use the cheese version of the microplane, which gives you a little bit bigger quantity, or do you really have to follow the recipe and go with minced? I think you could. Chris, what do you think? At Milk Street, some people use the microplane zester for garlic. The only problem is you get halfway through the clove and talk about leaving some of yourself. Yeah, okay, okay. It's kind of dangerous. <laughs> the other thing is I'm not a big fan of messing with garlic. I like to use a whole clove smashed and cooking it in the pan and then removing it. Or the best trick is to take a whole head, slice the top quarter off, throw it into a super stew. When you're finished cooking, oh. take the garlic out and then squeeze it. Well, no, you can put it back in the super stew. It gets very mild. And you don't have any of that really nasty aftertaste, and it it completely mellows out. So I'm a big fan of whole cloves. But if you you mince garlic and cook it slowly in oil, you know, or butter or whatever fat, it's going to be mellow, too. And I think you get more flavor out of the garlic when you mince it. And I'd say, yes, you could use the microplane. Back to your question. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for calling. Well, I'm really glad to have my answer. All right. You got All it. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah, okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, just give us a ring anytime. The number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE or simply call us at 1-855-426-9843. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hello. Who do we have on the phone? Uh, hi, my name is Bill. I'm calling from New York City. Oh, well, that's my hometown. How are you? Good. How are you? It's great to talk to you guys. Great to talk to you. And Pleasure. What is your question? So I make coquelin and other braised chicken dishes, and I make big batches on weekends so that we can have leftovers during the week. And I run into this problem of when I'm browning the chicken, you typically use bacon fat. The recipe I use, which is from a publication that one of you used to run, uh-huh. um, <laughs> calls for a combination of butter and bacon fat to brown the chicken. And I find that when you do multiple batches in the same pot, which is a cast iron, enameled cast iron pot, they start sticking after the first batch. Of course, because you've got all that fond in the bottom. All those little brown bits go down and stick. 
So and that's what makes it stick? Yes, exactly. So, you know, this is a problem that's been bothering me for a long time. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's a problem that bothers someone else. Oh, it really myself. bothers me. Um, and so I've started dealing with it in this way, which is I deglaze as I go. Yes, because it okay. can't brown. If there's all this stuff, what's going to happen is all those yummy bits in the bottom of the pan that you want to make your sauce out of anyway right. will just burn. So it's a double bad whammy. You know, not only can you not brown the next batch, you're burning those wonderful little bits in the bottom of your pan so they won't. Right. your sauce will be bitter. So I've started deglazing along the way. You know, maybe I'll do a couple of batches and it's okay, but even after the first batch, if there's a lot of brown stuff on the bottom, what I'll do is right. either add water, in the case you're making cacovin, why not, and deglaze the pan and scrape it up a bit, get all that stuff up and dump it into your pot where everything else is going to okay, go. so you deglaze, dump, and then do the next batch. But I would also rinse out the pan because you don't want the wine, you know, just rinse it with water. At that point, the pan will be very clean. Throw some water in, dry it out, and start over with more oil. Hmm. Actually, another person told me to just add oil, and that does seem to work, but maybe that wrecks the flavor profile. No, if it doesn't burn, I think that's fine. But, you know, let's say you have to do three or four batches in the same It pan. always gets really dark yeah. in the spots when you get a really burned flavor. Right. Yeah. I would recommend doing it the way I just suggested. You would do recommend deglazing and then adding oil? As opposed to some other fat? Well, you know, you could continue with your bacon scenario. That's absolutely fine. And you can deglaze it with water, too. Let's say you're not making something with wine. Just deglaze it with, or your chicken broth, whatever you would have deglazed it with anyway. Just a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. Just enough to clean out the pan. And the reason you do it as you go is because you want all those brown bits anyway. So you're building your sauce as you go, but you're also cleaning out the pan. Oh, that's a great idea. I've just started I would doing it. Do it that way. Kill two birds with one stone. Yes, absolutely. And it will just make your life easier. It will be so much easier to brown everything. Sarah spent five years thinking about it. I do. This. And then this she is the finally stuff that keeps me awake at night. <laughs> she didn't sleep for years, and she finally took the step. Yes, I do stay awake at night and think about these things. <laughs> Um, I'm glad you do. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're Great. a very serious cook if you're making coco vin, so that makes me happy. My kids love it. So, oh, nice. You know, they're very sophisticated kids. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you well, for thank calling. thank you so much. Okay. That's great. Thank you so much. Love your show. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, I head to the streets of South Boston to tour the real Southie, where Barbara Lynch grew up in the Old Colony Housing Project. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take a tour of South Boston with Chef Barbara Lynch, 
who grew up in the oldest housing project in America. It's called the Old Colony. Barbara lived just a few doors down from the infamous gangster Whitey Bulger. She indulged in her own short-lived life of crime. And then she went on to found eight restaurants in Boston, becoming perhaps the top restaurateur in town. Her new memoir, Out of Line, A Life Playing with Fire, is an unflinching look at her life and also on the mean streets of Southie. I met Barbara in the neighborhood where she grew up, in front of St. Monica's Church. Barbara, how are you? Hi, Chris. I'm, I'm great. How are you doing? A little doing? chilly. Uh, we're standing outside of a church. Yes, we it's are. one of your first jobs. St. Monica's Church. This is my confirmation name. Barbara Teresa Monica Lynch. Right here on Divine Way. We walked and we talked, and we finally arrived at the house that she grew up in. So, uh, believe it or not, this is still the oldest uh, housing project in the country, and it's, it hasn't changed. <clears throat> so is this entirely Irish at the time, or was it uh, I wouldn't say different, I, different we're parts? Kind of were different. Irish and Polish, but growing up, I mean, we were integrated. Here's my house. Here's where I grew up, 51. Huh. This is Divine Way, and then on the other side is Logan Way. So I lived at, we lived at 51. It's a row house, not a tenant. We literally had upstairs, downstairs, and a basement. And Nancy Henderson lived next door, Peggy Harrigan, and Peggy Mahoney. So wait, so Whitey Bulger lived here at 252. And he was a night owl. He never slept at night. He just And did he live here most of his life, or he? Yeah. When he got out of Alcatraz, he lived here. I assume he had quite a lot of money over the years, but he still lived here. He just, yeah, he had money home. hidden everywhere. Yeah. He had it in walls, and he had it everywhere. And in here, uh, one day, he was this kid was playing basketball way too late. He's like, I told you not to play basketball after 10. You're keeping my mother up. So he stabbed the kid. He stabbed First, he stabbed the basketball, then the kid. Then he drove him to Boston City Hospital and just kicked him out of the car and left him. I mean, he's a psychopath. <laughs> and you, I, I just finished your book. There was a scene when uh, you were walking by a playground and Whitey Bulger told you to get down or... Yeah. What was that? What, explain that to me. Well, one of my best friends growing up, Jane Mahoney, Whitey literally lived next door to her. And the, there were like six huge black limos that had just pulled around the corner and just came out and started shooting. And we were playing handball, and then he saw the cars, and he just took us, like, you know when a mother grabs a little kitten? Just like, and just threw us behind some tires so we wouldn't get shot. And what, and who were they trying to kill? Him. Oh, of course. I'm pretty sure it was the Italian mafia. We didn't ask. We left and then headed downtown to a local pub called the Shamrock. We ordered beers. Barbara asked for a Green Hornet, which I quickly realized was a Heineken. So we're here at the Shamrock, your watering hole. One of the last of the fine establishments here in Sophie, the, the dive bars that I love to hang out at, yeah. The chamois, for short. Where I know I can come and, and hang out with the friends that I grew up with. That, you know, they're all blue-collar workers, local kids. It's so nice to be able to still come back and know where you grew up and where you're from and, and where your roots are. And I, I think that's why 
I mean, I think that's why I'm so happy that my restaurants are in Boston still. We left and we made our way back into town on Congress Street, and then we sat down to chat at a very New York-style upscale eatery, Montan. So we've left um, the Shamrock, the Chamois, now we're at Montan. <laughs> we're at the, the, the most New York restaurant in Boston. Uh, very different world. How'd you like the Chamois? I loved it. I got to take you on a real night, like a, a good Saturday night. <clears throat> I'll have to yeah. leave my bow tie and my You'll get your ass suit. kicked, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> my scarf. No, <laughs> you're with Knuckles Lynch. I mean, what do you, you know. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I just finished your book, which I loved, by the way. Wow, um, thanks. And we just saw some of the places. So a few things about your old neighborhood I liked. You, you said Irish Alzheimer's. You forget everything except grudges. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um. uh, <laughs> you know, if you drank a lot, it was like you get the Irish flu. You're not an alcoholic. You have the Irish flu. So we were just down. You showed me where Whitey Bulger lived. So w- after all these years, he was a neighbor of yours. And he saved your life once, I guess. He, any thoughts about him now, looking back? You know... I mean, all of Southie thought he was the hero, of course, but, um, so I was younger than my sister, my, the sister who was closest to me in age, until this, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't even, I don't even know my sister, I wouldn't even know what she was like in real life, because she was always high on heroin, and he was selling it, so everyone always thought he was a good guy, but I always saw the bad side of him, not the murder side of him, although now I know, but he wasn't a good guy. You said when you were growing up in South that you kept looking out the window at, like, the fan guy store across the road, going, like, I got to get out of here. I well, mean, sort of. I mean, I guess more or less I just didn't want to be a single parent, and I didn't want to work four or five jobs like my mother. I just didn't. Right. But there was something, still something about South that you love dearly. Oh, my God. I yeah. love the camaraderie of the people here. I love that the pride of people. I love... Um, the respect they have for each other. I, I love everything else about it, but I, I, I wanted more. Right. I wanted to be something. I always wanted to make my mother proud of me, but to her, like, I was no better than any of her other kids either. She was a hard, she was a hard woman. So you, she worked at the St. Patoff Club, which is ostensibly an arts club in Boston, mm-hmm. but Mario was, I remember him, he was the chef at the club for years, yeah. and you work for him so what was he like oh my god he was a short italian guy from the lombardian region and he was tough as nails and also i have to say he was one of my mentors like i was just in awe of him and like how he could have five parties going on at once and he knew everything that was going on in the dining room like he literally would know once the food was down he knew seven minutes clear it boom second course seven minutes done He'd watch every plate that came back, what was eaten and what wasn't. And he knew, like, when Mr. Bell didn't eat his dish. or there was, I loved everything about the club. I learned a lot about food at the club. Sweetbreads under a bell, Dover Soul. I mean, it was just, it was another world. It was just a, a complete other world for me. And it wasn't very far from Salty. And that was stuck in my head about where I wanted to have my first restaurant. So just for listeners, so this club's on Exeter and Commonwealth. It's an old private house, but it's a classic Boston Classic Boston, 
affluent club members. I actually love the club business in general. I um, I love that it it's a community. I don't like the stuffiness of it, but I do like that there there is a purpose. So tell me about Number Nine Park. You said that was a a shoe store. Yeah, I mean that's, that's pretty pretty pricey real estate in Boston now. So that was just not a fancy street. It was, the Union Club was on. Is on street. that? Yeah, it but wasn't. Why, it was just a shoe store, and it was all faux marble, so there was really no windows. And before a shoe store, it was um, a diner, a Greek diner. Yeah, it was a it was a shoe store owned by I want to say another either Armenian or a Greek guy. And he had just left all the shoes there and left everything in that joint. And so it just sat there with shoes in there, empty for about a year. And um, the landlord, from what I heard, she was a difficult woman to deal with. And I was told I'd never get a lease. And I found her pleasant. And well, I, this was your I first? That was my first restaurant. Restaurant, number nine park, yeah, which is right off the Boston Common. Yeah. Yep. And you still have it. Yep. Yeah. And everyone told me, well, she'll never make it there. She'll never do good there. But it's doing better than ever, and it's 20 years old. So your signature prune stuffed gnocchi, that's a, is that actually a dish somewhere from Italy, or did you just make mm, that no, up? No, that's, that's the fun thing is that that I created. Like, it's not, that's one dish that no one ever made. Lobster rolls. You and I both have strong feelings about lobster rolls. Like, I ate one at some place in Maine a few years ago, and it was about a pound of lobster drenched in butter in a hot dog bun. But that was it. Yeah. Now, that's not lobster roll, right? I don't like it in that that way. I don't like it. I like it with homemade mayo, lemon aioli. But the celery has to be really, really small, diced. But you cared. I mean, this obviously you thought about this a lot. Like, the size of the celery. Do you ever bite into something like a sausage and and get you, some gnarly thing? You, yeah. Oh my god, is that cartilage? Like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. You don't that. like surprises in your uh-uh. food? No, it freaks me out. So <laughs> that's why it has to be really small, like really small, and then not a boatload of mayonnaise, but enough because I still want to taste the lobster, the brininess of it, and I really do like a. A top cider bun, and I, I like the Petrich Farm. Brioche is too buttery and too heavy. No, that's awful. Yeah. No. And I hate lettuce on it. Like, why, why do that? So you're obviously extremely talented chef, so what is it about what you do that makes you a great chef? I mean, what, what do you look for in a chef? Well, I don't think, or I'm, doesn't really I don't think I'm a great chef. I think I'm, I'm still learning. I think I'm still growing. Okay, but by, by any reasonable standards in the city of Boston... You have the most interesting group of restaurants. You've been very successful at, at an oyster house, mm. a butcher shop, upscale number nine park, Sportella with I think drink. You've done a lot of different things, obviously. I think I did what I think I was missing in the city of Boston. Like, I love oysters. I mean, the only place that had oysters was Union, Union Oyster Bar. I was sick of going to the North End for rabbits. Why don't we have a butcher shop, a real butcher shop? And plus, uh, everything's nostalgic for me. And then um, Stir, actually, it's only 200 square feet, but it's really my, my home kitchen. I built it because I knew I was opening these three restaurants and I didn't have a kitchen to work in or to test recipes. So I knew I could go to work every day in the city and start testing recipes. 
And also I could meet with my chefs there. Drink is based, I really want the dive bar of my dreams, but it's a little prettier. That ain't no dive bar. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then Montan is, was going to be my swan song. I like I've done a few dinners in France uh, at Michelin star restaurants and Boston doesn't have a Relay and Chateau restaurant. Why don't I shoot for that? And then we want to de-stuff it. Like it's, it was too stuffy and too frigid and too rigid. And, and with a luxury sort of like type of restaurant like that, it really takes 10 years to catch on and to really uh, hit its stride. And now we're on our 10th year. And so what have you left behind in Southie? Um, my dignity? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it almost feels like when I put my memoir in, it's just time to start living the next one. Like next part of what's, what's next in my little life. So now I have five acres surrounded by 27 acres. I, f- I live in like a villa. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah, you have to come sometime. I'll make you dinner. Make you dinner? Supper. It's a deal. Barbara, thank you. Thank you for the tour of Southie. You're so welcome. And um, it's it's like like Barbara Lynch Unchained (laughs) every time. You just never know what's going to happen. I like to make you laugh. I I think I shock you sometimes, but not really. No, No, I don't think so. That was Barbara Lynch, Boston chef and restaurateur, and also author of Out of Line, A Life of Playing with Fire. You know, I just love Barbara Lynch. I realized this when the two of us were drinking beers in the Chamois, the Shamrock Bar, a noted Southie destination. Everything was on the table, from hijacking a Boston bus when she was a teenager to stealing credit cards in Faneuil Hall and her favorite childhood dinner, an enormous plate of steak tips at a place called The Quiet Man in South Boston. And she told me about the kids who didn't get to grow up, those whose lives ended early. Lots of folks get out of the projects and go on to make something of themselves. It's just that Barbara knows when not to leave her past behind. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, investigating the five-second eating-off-the-floor rule of Dr. Aaron Carroll and a Tuesday night meal from Chef Anna Sorton. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, 
and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to check in with our regular guest, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column on health research and policy. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. How are you? What, <laughs> what common conventional wisdom are we going to destroy this week? I think we wanted to talk about the five-second rule. Oh, the, the famous five-second rule. Okay, I'm ready. Go ahead. Yeah, so this is, you know, that magic belief that somehow a food is on the floor for less than five seconds, that somehow it's still safe to eat, that you don't right. have to worry about anything be transferred from one end or from, you know, the floor or any other substance to the food. And it amazes me because, you know, at least every year someone publishes a study which says that the five-second rule is not real, that, you know, food can get transferred bacteria onto it very quickly that, you know, depending upon the surface, right. the height, the force at which it's thrown down, you know, stuff will move from the floor or from something else onto food very, very quickly. This idea that the five seconds is, is somehow the time limit that you have is, is, is just not true at all. But what blows me away every time is that I can't believe people are so worried about the floor. I just can't <laughs> fathom why people are so panicked that, you know, if, if your food hits the floor, that somehow you're going to die. Well, this goes to show you always, you, you step back and ask the big questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is part of it. Because, first of all, 
I, I've never had any problem eating off the floors at home at all. And part of that reason for that is like, I know we clean the floor. They're, you know, the floor's just not that dirty. And you don't just have to take my word for it. There's tons and tons and tons of research. There's, there's a guy in, I think he's in Arizona, um, and he has spent almost his life's work looking at how many bacteria or how many different germs are on various surfaces. And one of the things that he's found is interesting is that the floor is one of the cleanest things in people's kitchen because they worry about it all the time. Hmm. And so they clean it. But your kitchen counter is likely much dirtier than really? the floor. The refrigerator handle really? is likely dirtier than the floor. And so there's so many things in your kitchen which are which are dirtier than the floor, but the floor is what, what makes us all panicked. That's really interesting. You know, I, I actually do, uh, I'll admit this, I drop something on the floor, and if it's really good, I'll pick it up and eat it. It never bothers Absolutely. me. Not a problem. I do the same thing all the time. I'm not going to let good food go to waste. And if you're willing to sort of take this argument out further, you know, it applies to all kinds of things as well. You know, people are panicked about toilet seats. But in, even in the bathroom, the toilet seat's one of the cleanest things you're going to touch because, again, we worry about it. The The handles on toilets are usually dirtier. The sinks are dirtier. The door handles are dirtier. So all of the things that, that we don't think about all the time and worry about, hmm. that's the stuff that's dirty. Money is filthy. It's touched by tons of people's hands and yet you would never think huh. to clean it for the same reason your wallet and your purse are filthy. And yet I see people all the time pay for food with money in their hands and then immediately take the food and eat it and right. give no thought to the idea that where, where their hands have just been. What about this argument, which actually I've been part of for some time, which is should you rinse chicken in the sink or just cook it the way it came out of the package because you're, if there's bacteria on the chicken, you're spreading it all over your, your surfaces? The danger is probably not from the chicken itself when you cook it. The danger is what you might have touched right. with salmonella or theoretically. About. Now, here's the thing. The, it's still the, the risk of getting disease is still really, really low. You know, it's a greater than zero chance, but we've done a pretty good job these days of making sure that our food is safe. It's the stuff that we don't think about all the time that's unsafe. The dirtiest thing in your kitchen by far is the sponge. Huh. If we look at sort of how many bacteria there are per square inch, things like the floor, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about the, in the single digits of the number of bacteria that might be colonized, but sponges can be like millions. Well, thanks so much for that, Aaron, because uh, <laughs> my, my wife throws out the sponges every three or four days, and now it's going to be twice a day. I'm going to have to have a special trust fund for sponge, sponge right. acquisition well, after hearing that. The good news is you can clean a sponge easily by just tossing it in the microwave wet for, oh, for a okay. period of time or by running it through the dishwasher. Either of those things will clean your sponge. So it's, it's, you don't have to keep buying new ones. You can take necessary steps to, to make sure they're clean. The problem is that very few people do even what your wife does. They don't replace their sponges you know, every few days. They can go weeks, if not longer. And by that time, your sponge is just a cesspool. Uh, what about cleaning cutting boards? If you were cutting chicken, which is one of the most potentially dangerous foods you can buy in the supermarket... Um, is hot soapy water on a cutting board, you know, okay? Does it have to go through the dishwasher cycle? Do you have any recommendations? I probably would run it through the dishwasher because, you know, especially when you're cutting, part of it is that you're actually cutting into the board and right. getting back to, you're getting bacteria right. and other things deep in there. And so, sure, if you truly scrub it really, really well, you're going to get everything out. But most people don't. They just don't take the time uh, that they need to really get in there. And for that reason, again, a cutting board can be a really potentially bad way to, to transmit things. All of these things are worse than the floor, though. So the fact that we're talking about them and bringing attention to them is probably better than to have another discussion ever again about the five-second rule. <laughs> Dr. Aaron Carroll says eat off the floor, not off your counter. Thank you. 
Anytime. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, a regular contributor to our show. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Tracy from Salinas, California. Hi, Tracy. How are you? Good. How can we help you? Well, lately I have had a craving for my mom's lima beans, which she used to make us when we were little. And I have no idea how she would make them. I'm sure it's very simple, but I've tried it myself and I have failed. So any tips you have would be appreciated. I'd probably braise them. I'd put them in the oven, chicken stock, a little garlic thyme, something low and slow oven. Let them cook very gently, absorb some of that liquid. Well, I have two questions. First of all, where did you grow up? Well, my mom's from the Midwest, but I grew up in California. And what did you like about them, um, the way she made them? like really creamy. Mm-hmm. And when I've made them, like, they'll have hard parts. I'm wondering, you know, it's like fava beans, which are coming into season soon, you know, because we're heading into spring. And the big guys uh-huh. are sort of chewy on the outside. And the baby ones, you don't almost have to peel. Because fava beans, okay. you have to peel even the skin on the outside of the actual bean. We're not even talking about the pod. I wonder if you got hmm. baby lima beans, which I think you can get frozen. And What, well, was your mother getting them locally, or was she buying them in a supermarket? I really have no idea. I was too young to pay uh. attention. <laughs> but but I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if you can find baby lima beans. They would yes. be more tender. Yeah. And the other thing is, because uh-huh. I'm not against certain frozen vegetables, and one of them is lima beans, and I just mm-hmm. get the regular old ones, but they are big, and they take longer to cook than most frozen okay. vegetables, probably because they do have okay. a bit of a tough skin. So okay. I think Chris's idea about braising is great, but I would also try okay. to look for baby lima beans. Okay, and how long were you saying they should cook if I cooked them in chicken stock in the oven? I would say regular, non-pre-cooked, non-frozen beans are going to take 45 minutes in a 250 oven. Probably it's going to take quite a okay. while, I would think, right? Something okay. like that. But if they are frozen, you know, they've been blanched and pre-cooked, yeah. and so they wouldn't take they that wouldn't long. They wouldn't take that long. And, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Either, you know, brace them if you got the big guys or try to get the little guys, and I think you could even throw them in a skillet with some chicken broth and some butter and cook them gently until they're good to go. The best part of braising is you can get through quite a lot of a bottle of wine before (laughs) before the wine beans are ready. Chris, is that what you're doing when you're making dinner? Look, the whole point of making dinner, besides the fact you get dinner, is you, first of all, have to be in the kitchen, so you can't do anything else, right? You're busy. Yes, I mean, you can't do chores or to-do lists. (laughs) No. And then you get to drink wine and listen to The Grateful Dead or opera or whatever happens to be. And then by the time you get to dinner, you're not even interested anymore. What difference does it make? (laughs) I know, good point. And then, you know, a lot of farmer's markets are beginning to have shell beans where you can get fresh limas, and that would be sort of fun. Oh, that would be very awesome. And you know who's going to tell you how to cook it is that farmer. Or Alice Waters' vegetable book, which I highly recommend if you can still find it. Yeah. Oh. She did a book on vegetables, what, 10, 15 years ago? It's a great book. All right. Okay. I will yeah. definitely check that out. All right. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Thanks for calling. Okay. okay. Thank you. Take right. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Robert Beauregard. I live in Natick, Massachusetts. How are you? I'm great, Chris. Thank you. How can we help you? Recently, I've discovered the joy of eating salmon, eating it every chance I get in restaurants. I'd like to begin cooking salmon at home, but I'm faced with myriad cooking methods, grilling, searing, baking, poaching. Which do you think will start me off on the right foot? There's a recipe I use. You slice some lemons, like in quarter-inch slices, 
put them in the bottom of like a 10-inch, 12-inch skillet, some parsley stems, a little white wine, and capers, and then you put the salmon steak or filet on top so it's a little bit off the pan. And there's maybe you know a quarter inch of liquid in the pan, half an inch, and then wine. And then uh, you cover it and steam it, essentially, for 10, 11 minutes. We say poach, but it's really steaming. So the fish really isn't in the liquid. And then you can use a pesto or salsa, whatever you want with it. I find that method, actually. Very it's simple really one. simple. It's very quick. It's 15 minutes, start to finish. And it's very gentle. If you poach salmon, all the flavor ends up in the liquid, I think. so. And you don't have to heat the grill. That's my favorite. You know, I don't really have a favorite. I, I love salmon. But I'm going to say a really simple one, which is, goes back to Jane's beard, which is you do it in the oven, and you preheat it to the oven to 400 degrees, and then you just put the salmon in whatever baking pan and drizzle it with olive oil. I don't know if he used olive oil. He probably would have used butter, don't you think? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you drizzle it with olive oil, squeeze a lemon, salt, and pepper, and the rule is 10 minutes for every inch of thickness. And that's just a good, simple one, and you can throw any sauce on it you want. You don't have to think about it. The only trouble with salmon, the good news, bad news, is it has such a high fat content, it will stink up your whole house more than most other fish. So another way you might want to cook it is in an enclosed environment. I think Chris's would be better than mine because you've got it open in the oven. But another one is to cook it in parchment. And they now have these parchment bags where you can put the fish in the bag with whatever flavorings you want. I have one in my last cookbook, which has orange slices, rosemary, serranos, olive oil, a little Mm. bit of orange juice, a little bit of lemon juice. And you throw it all in the bag, and it sort of creates its own sauce while it's cooking. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the real plus is because it's cooked in a bag, your house doesn't stink like fish for days. Well, I think that method may be the winning one because my wife cannot stand the smell of fish. So, well, there you go. Bag. You want to get the ones that aren't bleached. There's a company called Paper Chef. I think they're sold in some stores. You definitely find it online. Well, this is all great. So thank you for your expertise. Okay. Well, good question. We like that question. I'm, I'm using your technique. I like that. <laughs> okay. so, what, what, what was the name? Paper what? It's time? called Paper Chef. As I said, what I love about bags besides containing the aroma of the fish is you just create your own sauce because nothing goes anywhere in those bags. It's great cleanup, too. So you do the little thing at the table. Everyone gets their bag. You take the scissor and you open it. And, you could do that. Yeah. I actually, I do four little um, center cut pieces in one bag oh. so that I have more. I don't use up so many right. bags. And then I just oh, You can take the whole thing to the table and cut it open at the table and just spoon out the sauce and the fish. Well, Rob, give that a try. All right. Thank you, Chris yeah. and Sarah. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Rob. Bye. 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 This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring anytime. 1-855-4-BOW-TIE or call 1-855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. By the way, you can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also at our own site, MilkStreetRadio.com. Hello, who do we have on the line? My name is Walt Fritz. Where are you calling from? Uh, Rochester, New York. Rochester, New York. How can we help you? As the primary cook in a family with a person in recovery, I often find that the recipes that are alcohol intensive or rely on the flavor of the alcohol as a base are kind of difficult to replicate without alcohol. I know that occasionally magazines will publish a special little insert to say, here's alcohol substitutes. But when you're seeing that recipe, it's very difficult to make a substitution. Apple juice is pretty lame. Broth is kind of lame. 
You know, it would be really nice to see recipes where the developers make an actual attempt to have substitutions for those, for instance, in the recovery community. I think it also could be an asset to the magazine. So you're saying that replacement that's appropriate to the recipe, not a one-size-fits-all. Exactly. That's actually been tested in this recipe to say, you know what, it it really is a good substitute. Well, there is Verjus, V-E-R-J-U-S, which is non-alcoholic. It's made from grapes, and that you can use. I would More say, exciting than regular grape juice, not as sweet. Right. It's acidic, and that's part of what the wine brings to the mix. I would always pair vinegar of some kind with something a little sweet. One of the ingredients I use a lot now is pomegranate molasses. I mean, that is like the world's best thing to add to a soup or a stew. And then with some vinegar, you can kind of get close, I think. So yeah. something a little sweet and something vinegary is the best way to make up for alcohol, I think. I mean, if you're going to use sherry in a dish, for example, some vinegar, vinegar with a little, something with a little sweet, will get, you know, it'll kind of get you in the ballpark. Well, you could use sherry vinegar yeah. and a little sugar, But I, I think you're right. I think he's right that you'd have People. to, you actually have a specific non-alcoholic substitution in a specific recipe. Right. And I do yeah. agree with yeah. you that just more chicken broth in a recipe is not going to do it. No. Wine is there for several reasons, and that's why it's interesting you brought up pomegranate molasses, because that is thick. And when you reduce wine in a recipe, because wine has a lot of sugar in it, it gets thick. So that's why pomegranate molasses would be good for, say, a red wine. It also provides, of course, the acidity. So you can't just add more chicken broth. No. There's no acid in them there, Hills. You need to add some lemon juice or cider vinegar or verjus or what's appropriate to the recipe. So we've got a heads up here. Also, sure. if, if you did use wine and boiled it down in a skillet in a sauce, the alcohol starts to boil off earlier than the water, but you never get rid of it all. That is you, true. You get down to about 10%, and the water and the alcohol form sort of a you stasis. See, it, been, it's never going to go. No, it's never going to go away. So. And plus, if I could add something, that there's a family member in recovery, you often don't bring alcohol into right. the house, period. That's a good point. Even if it does boil off you know, 90%, it's just not acceptable. Yeah. So right. you're right. it's almost like you feel left out when you read these recipes. It's like, okay, that's great, but we're going to miss out on that because... This is where we are in life. Right. Well, Got it. well try verjou, try vinegar with a little bit of sweetness, honey, whatever. That would be the, or the a good starting point. Do try the pomegranate molasses, too, because I think it's a wonderful ingredient everybody should know about. Okay, great. Okay, right, well, thanks. thanks. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Hello, who do we have on the line? My name is Chris. Where are you calling from? Salt Lake City. How can we help you? When I get a recipe that calls for shallots, oftentimes it will call for a shallot. Not like a volumetric measure, but just the whole shebang, you know? And then I go to the grocery store and I see there's a variety of different sizes of them. So sometimes they're really small, sometimes they're really large. And then when I cut into them, they have two lobes to them. Right. So if a recipe calls for a shallot, what size should I be going for? And do I use those two lobes if it calls for a whole shallot or do I just use one of them? I think a shallot I think, is a quarter cup minced. That's what I, as a volume measurement, I use both lobes, yeah. You know, the problem is that over the years, they really have gotten bigger. So I I feel your pain. So they got supersized? They did. Just like... They're huge. Yeah, many other things. I wish recipes were written with both, you know, say a medium shallot about a quarter cup minced as opposed to the way they are written now, which is just a shallot. But at the end of the day, it's not going to ruin your recipe if you use a little more or a little less. Wouldn't you agree, Chris? I agree, but those two lobe shallots are a pain yeah. to mince. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 an onion's obviously much easier to deal with. Right, but, well, it's larger. 
It's sort of like dealing with a garlic clove. But yeah, use both lobes. Quarter cup minced is a pretty good medium shallot volume, I think, yeah. And I'm glad you're using shallots. I love shallots. Oh, they're awesome. Yeah. You know what they're really nice into is a vinaigrette. Uh-huh. That's exactly where I use them. Nice, nice. What else do you put in your vinaigrette? Maybe some tarragon. As an acid, I like to use citrus juices, so Dijon mustard, things like that. Yummy. Yeah. <laughs> other thing I love shallots, take like 10 or 12 shallots. Chop them coarsely, throw them in the bottom of a Dutch oven or one of those cook cots, you know, that for cooking a chicken. Mm-hmm. Cook them a little bit with some olive oil and salt and stuff, and then put the chicken on top, some wine. Yummy. Put the top on, yeah. come back in an hour or so. And <laughs> You know what you just made me think of, too, is Eastern, a lot of Eastern cuisines, they have like Thai cooking. They have fried they do. sliced shallots, and they fry them and use them as a garnish. And garlic as well, fried garlic. Yeah. Shallots are great. Opening up your world. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Christopher. Thank you so much. Okay. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. This week's Mill Street Basic is spicing up honey. You know, a chili-laced honey is a great way to add accent to all manner of dishes. In fact, in Naples, they actually drizzle it over pizza. Now, here's a quick recipe. Whisk together a half cup of mild honey with a tablespoon of chili garlic sauce and three tablespoons of neutral-tasting unseasoned rice vinegar. Make sure to use a neutral-flavored honey, otherwise the flavorings might be a tad unbalanced. It'll store at the ready in the refrigerator, and you can add bowl flavor to almost anything in just seconds. Now it's time to talk to yet another Boston chef, this is Anna Sorton, about what she cooks on a Tuesday night at home. Her latest book, So For Me's, Vibrant Middle Eastern Recipes from So For Bakery and Cafe, was recently released. Anna, welcome back to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. Okay, I'm setting the stage. It's Tuesday night at 6 o'clock. You have half an hour, 45 minutes to get a simple supper on the table. What are you going to do? I would make my favorite red lentil soup, which is super, super easy. It's uh, red lentils, onions, a little bit of carrot chopped, and then water or chicken broth to cover the lentils. And when the lentils become soft and tender... You stir in a couple tablespoons of really finely ground bulgur, and then you sprinkle it with, um, before you serve it, you sprinkle it with a lot of dried mint, sumac, and marash pepper. And then I would probably do some sort of chopped salad using some pomegranate molasses, lemon, olive oil. I love salads and soup at home, especially on a a Tuesday. And where do you live? (laughs) <laughs> Just kidding. I'll be <laughs> next Tuesday. I'll, it is Tuesday. Great. I'll be there tonight. That was Anna Sorton. She's the chef owner of two restaurants in the Boston area, Oleana and Sofra. You know, I did have a last thought. Going back to one's childhood haunts is very tricky business. As an adult, things always appear smaller and maybe a bit more mundane. But maybe the trick isn't to see the past through the eyes of a child, it's really to see the future. And that's the charm of Barbara Lynch. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. 
senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.